0: Hi, this is Chad. I'm so glad to be part of your journey towards product mastery and creating better products that your customers love. This episode is sponsored by the rapid product master experience, the RPM experience, which is the fastest way for product VPs to help their product managers and everyone else contributing products to increase performance. It's not like other training, it's an actual experience. Go to productmasterynow.com RPM to see how it can help you too. Now, today we're exploring technology and technology innovation versus a market-driven innovation approach. And I want to set this topic up for us a bit to get into it. There are times that a technology does come first, and later we find a problem that's associated with it that a market actually needs. So some examples include the glue that made 3M's post-it notes possible. Seven years later, when we came up with post-it notes. Electric actuator that Caterpillar created that went unused for quite a while until later they developed a digger and excavator couldn't use our standard hydraulics platform. And also my daughter's doing magnetic research as a physics student studying spin wave properties for some applications that are yet to be discovered, right? Now, most of the time though, and on this podcast we talk about market-driven innovation quite a bit, that seems to be more common, right? These are the wants and the unmet needs that customers have and we discover what those are and then we try to find a solution for them, market-driven innovation. And that's the process that we've talked about before in jobs be done methodology as well as many books cover it we've covered some of those on this podcast too including the innovators method now to help us kind of compare and contrast these approaches dr john cooley is with us john has five technology degrees from mit certainly has the technology side covered well here starting with dual bachelors in electrical engineering double e as well as physics and then ending with a phd in E. He founded a company called Nanoramic in 2009 and now serves as their Chief of Products and Innovation. Nanoramic is a nanocarbon composites engineering company, currently working on electric vehicle batteries by reducing their cost while increasing their energy density. That's more energy in smaller and lighter batteries, and at the same time providing rapid charging. This solves a key aspect of electric vehicles for us of getting batteries that work better. As a reminder to listeners, if you want a written summary of anything we talk about, including a one-page action guide to put into action the key takeaways that are discussed, simply go to productmasterynow.com slash 393. John, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks, Chad. Thanks for having me.
0: I am so fascinated for us to have the opportunity to talk because we get to dive into this kind of intersection of technology and market-driven needs. Your experience is pretty well aligned to this, right? So you've been involved in you know, doing kind of that pure research, maybe, when you're doing your physics work, R&D aspects. And when we do R&D, it's kind of driven towards a problem that's in mind, right? Something that we're trying to solve, some research direction. And then market-driven research, too. Uh, clearly, electric vehicles need better batteries is one thing that's been slowing adoption a little bit, is better battery tech. So that's a clear customer or market need. As an innovator, I'm curious, how do you view that, right? There's this complicated intersection, or maybe we just start in one space. How do you view that? Maybe some examples you can share with us, too.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I would say, you know, at Nanoramic, we have developed sort of what I consider to be a product development business model, or internally, we call it sort of this product development machine. So we have studied these kinds of topics kind of as a matter of necessity in order to perform we have developed a lot of products and some of those products are market-driven and some of them are technology-driven first and foremost, and then there's quite a lot of mix. And also what I would say is that in in our sort of ethos of product development methods and processes, we have recognized that there always needs to be some market-driven aspect for a successful product. So if even if you start with something that seems to be a very neat or cool technology in the product development process, we have methods for sort of linking that development to the market. And I like to think of it like our product development is high surface area and it's contact with the outside world. So we try to create ways for our product development teams either directly from technology to customers or through business development stakeholders to interact with customers and get feedback. And, to formal, and we even formalize the way that Feedback is considered and then incorporated into the product development process. And in particular, the the statement of requirements or the things that the product is supposed to do. I would also say that a lot of our products, and we've developed a lot of them over the years, start from, you know, we kind of look for what we call sort of sensors, right? How do you sense the market need? And a lot, and really the most effective sensor that we've found over time is just customer interactions about an existing product. So in a conversation about a product that we're already selling, what does the customer say that they would like instead, and that's where a lot of products come from. But uh, you know, we certainly in the past have started from a technology, and there are there I have examples of that. I mean, for one thing, the, the original kind of technology concept that we developed under the uh, the DOE grant award that we won in 2009, I would say was you know there's always a market driven aspect to it, but the, the it was a technology driven innovation. Primarily, and it was, a, it was intended to be a very high efficient electrode technology for what at the time had been a niche energy storage device called a supercapacitor. We had a way of making those electrodes with un, a uniform array of nanotubes. And you can imagine sort of a nanoscopic hairbrush. And that's a very uniform and ordered structure that sort of intuitively you can understand has advantages in ion transport and overall efficiency. And it does. And then we wanted to connect that to markets. And the overall narrative arc for us has always been to connect those kinds of innovations to, to clean tech markets. So we look for ways to make to connect those dots. But it re- there really is a mix. And there are, you know, I have other examples that have come up. And we have a whole business line called Thermexit. It's, uh, it's the only piece of the company that's not focused on energy storage technology. It's focused on Polymer composites and products. Mm. And the key product line there is a, is what's called a thermal interface material gap filler or gap pad for electronic systems. It helps dissipate or remove heat from electronic components to get it out of the system. So it's very crucial for performance. In some ways, it's the bottleneck on performance Mm -hmm. for all of the electronic systems that you see around you. The extent that the efficiency with which you can remove heat from those systems is directly related to the performance of those systems. And so this little plastic pad that tends to be the thermal bottleneck in your electronic systems actually has a very important role technology, you know, these electronic systems fundamentally. But anyway, that's a little bit of a deep rabbit hole on that. What's interesting is that the way that technology started. So the way that technology began was that we, you know, we had quite a lot of experience internally with carbon nanotubes and other nanocarbons. We had needed to develop ways to do things like disperse them and make composites with them. And some of those materials have very interesting properties like high thermal conductivity or very high thermal conductivity. And we had gotten good at making these composites. And there is an investor meeting. Actually, this was an investor meeting happened to be at MIT. And an investor, potential investor, came in and just asked us to talk about how we would use our technology for uh, thermal interface materials. And we had some data and we kind of presented it and everybody got excited and that investor never invested. In fact, that was the last meeting we had with them, but we got very excited and we did find an investor, a strategic investor who who got excited about it and we developed a product and then ultimately found the market, which which ended up being high performance consumer electronics. And so that's an example where we sort of started from basically a bunch of nerds in a lab working on something that they thought was cool. And then finding an application as the technology developed and we turned it into a product, which is a successful business line today. So it it can really go both ways. Definitely, like you mentioned, the electric vehicle lithium ion battery market is a market driven is a market driven product for us. We're able to adapt our core innovations and IP to make a big difference in that space. And that's very much driven by the requirements and needs in in that market. And so that I would say is kind of the opposite example. And so kind of to answer your question initially it's always a mix right and you right. want to be opportunistic but also disciplined i would also just finish by saying despite all of that acknowledging that it's a, always a mix um, you can always pin that down and you can make a disciplined process and so what we do internally is we have something that a lot of that's pretty commonplace which is a feasibility study or analysis and part of and really the purpose of that is to create some discipline and identifying product concepts and how they fit into a market. So if we start from a market, do we have technology that addresses that need? If we start from a technology, is there a market that actually will 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 buy this product? And the feasibility analysis is really intended to kind of put that picture together.
0: Lots of good things in there. I want to just drill in a little bit more. And I think I'll start with the pace, the thermal, actually a pad for you, the nanocarbon pad. So it's pretty common if we were to build a computer, put our CPU in, and we attach that thing to a heat sink because we need to dissipate the heat. And otherwise, the thing just doesn't perform well, right? And so a thermal paste goes there and there. That, that That's the kind of thing we're talking about. This is a thermal pad that could be used for that to conduct the heat from the heat generator, the CPU, in this case, to like a heat sink.
1: That is what the ThermExit business line primarily focuses on, yeah
0: like you said, some nerds in a lab working on what can we do with carbon nanotubes and observing some of the properties about them. And you probably looked at lots of properties, right? Strength and other things. Somewhere along the line, was this a path that someone that you knew to go down, an advisor said, you know, let's study the thermal properties. Or was it just part of the overall research?
1: Yeah. So I would say a sort of serendipity and confluence of events. Like I said, we sort of had and in fact, in our company, we encourage sort of some time for our engineers and technical staff to just kind of experiment in the lab. So we, there's sort of some people will say in our company, there's so much IP that you can kind of pick it up off the floor. And that really, that's <laughs> kind of true. There's almost like any new co- concept or market, we have kind of something to say about it. If it's close, if it overlaps with what we do in at all. And, uh, and so we had already. Some engineers who had played around in the lab with polymer composites. So this business line, Thermexit, is really focused on polymer composites. And they had discussed, they had seen some properties. And one of the properties that they had noticed that it's consistent with what you expect from the literature is that if you establish a sort of a scaffold or a mesh of carbon nanotubes or really any high aspect ratio nanomaterial it doesn't have to be a nanotube. If you establish a, an effective mesh of that material, you get good percolation. There's a percolation threshold. And if your aspect ratio of those materials is very high, the percolation threshold is very low, meaning you don't need very much of that material to establish that mesh. And that was one of the first results that we noticed in the lab. And we also noticed with carbon nanotubes. And what I'll say here too is in our actual commercial products, I won't say yet whether or not we use any particular material in the final released version of that product, including carbon nanotubes but a lot of the a lot of the initial work sometimes starts with carbon nanotube's and their properties. And so we had noticed we had noticed this effect, we had noticed other effects like hyper electrical connectivity. There's an interesting effect with carbon nanotubes that they sort of reverse the function between electrical connectivity and temperature. Mm. Whereas in a normal metal, metallic conductor, your resistance, your aggregate resistance increases as temperature increases and it's the opposite with carbon nanotubes. So that's another property we noticed. And we also noticed other things, for sure, mechanical strength or um, resistance to sort of brittleness or ductility is another sort of feature that they can Im- impart on a on an aggregate material. And we had kind of seen all that. We had conversations, like I said, with investors and customers. Right. And then there was a moment where we said, OK, well, I think we're going to make a thermexit. We're going to make a business line out of something here. Here are a few different product concepts and there's a long list. What is the one that is the lowest hanging fruit in terms of market adoption cycle, you know, bona fide customer interest, alignment with our actual technology capabilities. And that was really sort of a pure feasibility analysis. And that's how we ended up with the first product line under that business that we did, which was the thermal interface material. It may not be the most exciting, right? And maybe that's not the point. But what's interesting about that product is the systems it goes into are very fast design cycle. So one year design cycle as opposed to other industries that might be much longer. And it's an easy product to understand. It's a plastic pad essentially that conducts heat. You can pick it up. You can feel it. You can see that it makes your fingers feel cool when you touch it. And it's a low, it's a simple and small manufacturing footprint. So we can manufacture this in a pretty small portion of our lab and all those things kind of together put that as the first step that we would, product that we would develop under this business line. But there are much, there's a long list of other concepts that we would, that we plan to develop.
0: Sure. Just examining this innovation, technology-driven innovation, market-driven innovation, you know, some key things that happened in there were some pure research. Essentially, it sounds like, you know, pure research going on about, let's understand the properties of, of these nanotubes and just how they react, how they respond to different things. And there was free time available to do that, right? You said there were, was time given to people to experiment. So part of your workday, some, some time to kind of work on your own projects, it sounds like. Fair enough? Yeah, that's right. Okay. So that just helps our minds go other places as well. And we get to work on our own projects. And Google had that as an example for a while, right? Their 20% time that people have talked about. And 3M apparently still does their 15% time to work on your own projects as a key part of their innovation engine. Mm-hmm. And then the other aspect was collisions with other people and other perspectives. If you and I and a couple other people are hanging out in the lab, you know, that's our ecosystem. And we're learning from each other as we develop these things, but it's still us. And it sounded like there were other collisions of thought when you started talking to the investors about maybe some ways that we might be able to use this.
1: That's, yep, that's right.
0: Okay. And I was just going to ask about... The company came first it sounds like right you had a doe grant to go down this path of supercapacitors which we might get back to uh, to find out more about those and so there was some purpose set up for this but it was fundamentally a research kind of organization not knowing what we were going to create in the future
1: initially i mean we had aspirations but we also were pretty eyes wide open yep
0: we have one example you shared the investors providing maybe some of that business direction you know, what can we do from our tech that we've developed from our IP and leverage that into something that will be a product that we can create revenue from, sustain this business, right? Offer value to customers, keep this going. Yeah. But inside the organization, how did the, kind of this business drive come about? You might be wired this way as a technologist, but you don't typically find people with all those characteristics present. I love doing pure research, I love building products, I love creating value for customers, I love putting together a business to create products in the marketplace. That's usually a group of people for such a thing. Right. How did that come together?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I guess there's a lot there. And part of the answer is personality. And in particular, I think I have a per, I have my own personality and interests. And then part of it is really the initial charter of the company, you know, I'll start with that piece first. I would say the company was exciting when we started it because there was a lot of buzz around clean tech applications and technologies. And, uh, I co-founded the company with another MIT grad student. And, you know, as MIT grad students, eventually, especially if you are driven, you get a little restless and you want to do something. Mm-hmm. And this was all happening in 2008 and 2009, kind of, kind of coming out of the recession. And with the stimulus funding, a lot of that went to clean energy applications and technology development. And, you know, the initial charter of the company, we, when we, we sort of what happened was we, you know, myself and my co-founder, we took a We happened to take a business class at the same time. We didn't plan to do that. It's called mm-hmm. Clean Energy Ventures. The final project from that c- class turned into a business plan competition in the Clean Energy Prize, which we did well in. And the business plan from the Clean Energy Prize became a grant proposal to the DOE for one of these major DOE grant awards, which we won. So we won, we, won, we wrote this DOE grant proposal out of the basement of, of, of MIT and won it. It was $5.5 million, and it was intended to develop advanced carbon nanotube-based electrodes for supercapacitors and cleantech applications. And so that's really the initial charter of the company. It's this technology for that application, clean tech applications, which is something that we're, we're passionate about. And the goal is then to make an impact on that application, right? It's not to spend time in the lab, although that's we need to do that. The goal is very specifically to commercialize technology, right? And to do it in an application, in and industry that's worthwhile. And so in our day-to-day conversations, that comes out right? We have a lot of lab work, design work, data collection and analysis. And if we ever lose sight of the fact that what we're trying to do, and by the way, this comes into business development conversations as well, because there are engineering contracts. Well, we're not in business for engineering contracts. We have to perform under engineering contracts. But the point is to commercialize technology, get it on the road, make an impact in an industry, right? So that comes out in our day-to-day conversations. I would also say to the but so the first point, my personality, I think, kind of has put a th- sort of has put a thumbprint on the organization, because what I've always been fascinated by is, you know, very specifically sort of start as a starting point, electronic systems. Right. I was a double E. I am a double E. I am a circuits guy living in sort of an advanced materials company. And that's fine but what i've always been fascinated by was the ability to sort of cobble together a collection of electronic parts into a system that does something that you want it to do and in, and even more interesting is if you can do that and you can and other people want it and they'll pay you for it so i've always been very fascinated by the idea that you could connect a cool technology idea to a market driven need or you know a paying customer in simple terms i really get energized by that and i think that shows up in the organization
0: I'm going to take a really quick detour. I think it's useful for all of us to reflect back on our motivations and think about, you know, what is it that drives us today? And I'm curious, when you talked about the electrical, you know, putting together these electrical components and having them do something, right? So, like when I was seven years old, the electronics engineer that lived across the street taught me how to solder and build a metal detector kit. It was the Radio Shack metal detector kit, which now I think is like one chip and a speaker. But back then it was these, you know, like 47 points you had to, 47 parts you had to solder together, right? And that sparked an interest in me to say, oh, you can create something, you know, that that does this new thing. I'm curious along the way, what was kind of your motivation to go, you know, this is pretty cool to make something new that other people want
1: it make it might get very philosophical. I'm not sure. I mean I think that we all have a we all have a desire to do it, it, you know it might come down to you know our desire to be valued or appreciated and in an our society, right where we live in a capitalist society that's surrounded by technology. If you can make a technology that you know outwardly is valued and the indication of that is that you there's a paying customer then we feel valued or we feel that we've accomplished something. If you can layer on to that. People appreciate it. Yeah, if you, yeah, that's right. I think that's really, I mean, without it's maybe a, a little touchy-feely, but I think that may be what it comes down to.
0: Yeah, yeah I think there is something special. And those of us that are driven to create products to do innovation, we enjoy that aspect, right? That we're making something that other people value. They go, wow, thank you, right? I, I needed that thing. That's right. Thanks. I just wanted to explore that with you a little bit as part of your background and what drives you today as well. Back to what the business is about now. This could be a good example of how did we go from, you know, the start building super capacitors to now doing tech for batteries and electric vehicles. And you alluded earlier, right? This is a market-driven kind of direction, but the company could have done other things. What was the leap that took place there?
1: Yeah. And it's really interesting. And I oftentimes try to reflect on whether we got lucky in the way that things evolved or if this happened on purpose. Our aspiration has always been to find a way to make a big impact in clean energy. Our initial technology focus, even for the first five or six years of the company, was supercapacitor technology. And in 2009, that was a very popular thing to talk about, supercapacitors. They were going to change the way that electric vehicles would be designed. They were going to change the grid.
0: And real quick, John, just context there. We probably need to understand this better, right? So basic capacitor has two plates in it. You send electricity through it. There's a material in the middle that holds that charge from electricity. You move the electricity. It kind of turns into a battery for a point of time, right? You can use that charge out of the capacitor. And supercapacitors, I thought at the time, was the idea that we could just hold a whole lot more charge and they would become the batteries of the future, Can you give us the right context of what a supercapacitor is?
1: Yep, for sure. So the first capacitor you just described is what we kind of call a dielectric capacitor, sometimes electrolytic. But the principle is, like you said, you have two conductive plates separated by a dielectric material that doesn't conduct electrons, but it supports the electric field between the plates. You can store charge and energy in, in that device. And the capacitance is directly proportional to the surface area sort of overlapping between those two plates, among other things. And it's also inversely proportional to the separation of those plates. So the closer those plates come together, the more capacitance, the more capacitance you have. In a supercapacitor, what you do is you basically take that structure and you make it nanoscopic and you make it very high surface area. So you're increasing that surface area and you make the separation between those two plates effectively microscopic. And the way that works is you take one electrode and then inside this, the device, you have an, a, a, usually a liquid electrolyte. And in that liquid electrolyte, you have charge buildup on the surface of the electrode. So that layer of charge built up on the surface electrode serves sort of as your quote unquote second plate in the dielectric capacitor example. So the spacing between that layer of charge and the electrode is very small, mm-hmm. right? So we said it's The capacitance is inversely proportional to the spacing, so that means your capacitance will be impacted positively. And also the surface area can be very high because it's a nanostructured surface that has a lot of sort of features, right? And so it's very high surface area. So the surface area is high, separation is low, capacitance is very high. The one trade-off there there is the the, the sort of device or terminal voltage tends to be lower sort of in the single digit volts compared to a dielectric capacitor where it can be very high. But when you step away from the devices and you kind of plot them on say an axis of just energy density, how much energy can you start store in a given volume or weight? What you see is that you have dielectric capacitors are relatively low. Chemical batteries, which function on a completely different principle are very high, relatively speaking. And then supercapacitors are right in the middle. And then the other dimension that you trade off there is power density. So how efficiently and or fast can you sort of get the energy in and out of the device? And so if you plot that on two dimensions, right, you have sort of super capacitors in the middle of both, right? So mm-hmm. dielectric capacitors are high power and low energy. Chemical batteries are high energy and low power and super capacitors are somewhere in between. So when you look at it that way, you can start to You can start to figure out where your technology can actually fit into the market because you can match the power and energy mix of those devices or technologies to the application. And it can actually get, you can boil it down really to like very specific technical details. Like what is the time? What is the sort of natural time constant in the application or the load profile and in seconds or milliseconds or minutes? And so based on that, what is the natural sort of time constant of the energy storage technology that we look at? which one matches it best. And then you can take it even further and you can say, well, there are some or really many applications where there's a mix of sort of that sort of time-based content in the load profile. And so actually maybe the solution from an energy storage technology standpoint is a mix of energy storage technologies. So you see hybrid devices, right? Actually, this is the or hybrid systems. This is actually the impetus for hybrid electric vehicles.
0: Okay. That goes back to kind of that technology perspective, understanding the properties of the materials, of the capabilities of, of the supercapacitor product that was created in this case, and kind of where can that fit into the marketplace? How does it compare to existing options out there? Yep. And then thinking about what can we do with this? How did then did this kind of base of capabilities and again, IP that you have built up lead to working on EV batteries?
1: And again, I think there was some serendipity and some intention, but in sort of the first six or seven years of the company, there was just a lot of activity and innovation around the internal components of the energy storage devices at the time were mostly supercapacitors. And some of that was really out of necessity. So, you know, we had the initial DOE grant, but then we had follow on grants for DOE, DOD and NASA to do very exotic things like deep space missions and Venus missions and geothermal well drilling. It was very high temperatures, very low temperatures, vacuum scenarios, vacuum atmospheres and then also commercial contracts for engineering to do things like aerospace and defense or oil and gas drilling applications somewhat ironically right because we're really ultimately getting into clean tech
0: it's a process it's a journey
1: (laughs) all of that yeah that's right all of that taught us a lot about the fundamentals internal to energy storage devices what makes it electrochemically stable, what makes it high energy, what makes it high power, but what also what's practical from a design for manufacture standpoint, and what new materials have come around in the supply chain that are now widely available that we can incorporate. That's been a big change over the last 20 years. We've gotten very good at using some of those more recent materials in the last say, decade in a very practical way that other people haven't. And then You know, sort of 2016, 2017, the electric vehicle renaissance is starting to begin. And we've developed some electrode technology for supercapacitors that eliminates the most limiting material, which is this plasticky or PVDF binder. It's a non-conductive material that's really just intended to hold sort of materials or powders together as almost like a glue. It's called a binder. We had, we had to eliminate that for a number of reasons. It wouldn't hold up in the different temperatures that we were exposed to for one thing. And there are other reasons to eliminate it. And so we had developed processes and methods for making energy storage electrodes without that kind of limiting material. And it turns out that when you do that in lithium ion batteries, you have benefits all over this, all over the system in terms of cost and performance, sustainability. And it's one of these technologies that you sort of learn a new benefit every time you study it. So we were able to transfer that kind of core innovation, the elimination of the PVDF binder into lithium-ion battery electrodes, both cathode and anode. So both electrodes inside of the battery in the 2017-2018 time frame. And then really found ourselves in a position where we had something very exciting right at a time when this electric vehicle market was becoming very exciting. And so we we were positioned... And I think some of it was luck. I mean, we had just had all this IP. Uh, We were ready. Uh, We were looking for an opportunity to finally get into clean tech. And and we sort of found it.
0: Nothing wrong with being there at the right time at the right place. Yeah. I know we're running just a bit long time wise. Are you okay to go a little bit more? Yeah, sure. One of the things I read on your website was the electric vehicle capability you have now for, for batteries. Sounds like it goes into the existing manufacturing process. As opposed to creating a whole new battery that you can actually work inside how batteries are manufactured today.
1: Yep, that's right.
0: And this is just again those technology-driven versus market-driven decisions. I assume there was conscious thought put into that along the way because you could have looking at, been looking at your tech and say we can make a new battery it is much better than what's available today in the marketplace, and or we can use technology that we have to enhance the way batteries are being created today. And I don't know if there was an actual decision there or not, but I'm curious to just kind of walk through that with you. But, you know, this is another kind of market-driven decision that we're faced with.
1: Yeah, so I guess the punchline there is that one of the competitive and key advantages of our neocarbonics technology, which is, by the way, nanoramics lithium-ion battery technology is called neocarbonics. One of the key competitive advantages is exactly that. It's, it, is, it has all of these advantages and cost and performance. But unlike really any other battery technology that's coming around today, it reuses existing manufacturing equipment and infrastructure, and this is really an advantage for our ability to rapidly scale and commercialize and get the batteries into vehicle platforms and on the road and having an impact on CO two emissions as soon as possible. That that sets it apart, and I like to say it's an elegant technology for that reason. As far as the decision process leading up to that, there was I don't believe we ever actually had a sort of a moment where we decided, you know, we can make a new battery completely from the ground up or we can adapt our technology to existing batteries. I think it was by the time that this happened, it was more inherent in the way that we work and think. We have, for one thing, developed an ethos around practicality and manufacturing readiness. So we really shy away from product development that creates something that's not practical. Right. And there's a lot of focus on is what you're designing practical from a process standpoint is what you're designing practical from a supply chain and material standpoint. And if it's not, that's a major red flag. Um, So that's built in almost to like the culture of the company at, at this point. And then. The other thing is that we've developed what we call sort of a capital light business model. And at its default, this is like what you might consider to be a licensing business model. And really what that means is what we're focused on is product commercialization and less on owning all the high value, high volume manufacturing. What we want to do is get the products commercialized as fast as possible. So what that might mean is we partner to do the high volume manufacturing. We'll manufacture up to a point to prove that it's scalable. And then we'll be open minded about partnerships like licensing arrangements and outsource manufacturing partnerships. So with all of that, you know, it kind of just was a natural progression, right? We had this IP, you could eliminate PVDF. It was a process and a material innovation, and we thought we could transfer it to lithium ion batteries. And we realized that if we could do that, well, you would reuse existing manufacturing equipment. You could license it into existing facilities, and everybody should want it because it's going to simplify their manufacturing process reduce their costs and improve their performance. And it's going to change the disposition of our company overnight. And it did. And so I think it was, you know, I think it was kind of born out of those cultural aspects and just the availability of IP that we had generated uh, up to that point.
0: Yeah. Aligned with the organization. And what I want listeners to hear in all that is that your innovation strategy was really born out of the organizational strategy, right? So there was a organizational strategy that kind of just grew this ethos of the organization That we want to be practical, we want to get things into the market quickly, we want to think about how this would be manufactured, and not have a capital-intensive business, but instead leverage our technology in ways that we can get out into use fast. And that drives the innovation strategy, which suggests, well, we're coming up with products then that we can work with partners, that we can get into existing manufacturing. Those constraints help us actually innovate better, because we kind of know the model that we're in, so to speak, right? Where all the building blocks come together. Yep. Okay, appreciate that example. would love to keep talking about this. Just, I think there's a lot of richness here to think about that intersection between market-driven, tech, market-driven innovation and technology-driven innovation. You've given us some good examples along the way, and I know I and hopefully listeners have found value in that as well. We do like quotes around here, and I asked you to come with an innovation quote to share with us. If you could do that and tell us what that means to you, that'd be great.
1: Yep. quote that I like is, or that I want to give you is, the harder a decision you make, the more value you add. And that sounds a little terse, but there's a lot to it. And I, you know, there's a, there are other versions of this sort of like some people will say to you, the, you know, the more awkward conversations you're willing to have, the more successful you're going to be. You know, there are sort of different sort of riffs on that sentiment, but you know, I think that our jobs as innovators and leaders and technologists is are to sort of confront never ending sequence of problems and solve them as efficiently as possible. That's kind of what we do, right? That's what we do in our personal lives, that's what we do in our professional lives. And the harder the problem you confront, naturally we think is going to, you know, is going to correlate to the value that you're sort of the value that you're adding to that sequence of solutions, right? So I like to think about sort of what is a problem that, what is the most important problem that we can address right now, either in our product development, design, or organization, or whatever it is, and just get at the root of that and go right at it and solve the problem. And when you do that, you see organizations, products, teams, relationships move forward and sort of step change, Fashion, so I you know I, I try to look for those opportunities to solve solve really hard problems and add a lot of value as fast as possible.
0: Very good. I appreciate you sharing that. This might be a bit of a leap, but back to you doing a double bachelor's degree in physics and double E at the same time. There's this great line that probably no one remembers from a obscure movie, Real Genius, with Val Kilmer, and he's a super smart physics student, and they develop a laser capability. And they're talking to, to, together, him and another physics student, about, well, what will we do with this? And they say, well, that's up for the engineers to figure out, right? We just developed the capability. The engineers will figure out how to use it. There's this really interesting intersection between physics and electrical engineering, right? That, because you kind of do both. And I imagine that was a, that sounds like a hard decision to make when you're thinking about going to college and say, well, you know, I could do one degree, but I think I'll do two at the same time. Yeah, it's an interesting combination to that actually does prepare you to understand why things happen, not just how they happen, right?
1: For sure. That's a really good way to kind of say it. I, you know, I think almost to my detriment, I focus a lot on sort of why things happen first, right? Whenever I see a problem, I step back and say, what's the paradigm or the system or the root cause of this situation? And maybe that's, born out of my education. Maybe it's born out of my mix of sort of disciplines that I've been exposed to between physics and electrical engineering. Maybe it's just born out. Maybe that is the point of getting a PhD. You know, you sit in your office in your lab and you think for five years, basically what you're charged with when you get a PhD. So there's been a lot of practice in sort of paradigmatic thinking as you will, if you want to think of it that way. I think that helps, you know, you put in its basic terms, you're putting things in context. Why is this happening? What's actually going on? Yes, I think physics focuses quite a lot on that. When I went to school, when I went to college, I was kind of following my brother's footsteps. He's a physicist. And so I started with physics. But what was interesting is that at MIT, they require you to do undergraduate research, hands-on research. And when I went to go find a research advisor, I found that I was more drawn to even within the physics department, all of the professors who were doing electrical engineering are hands-on work. And, when I, and that happened sometime in my sophomore year. So when that happened, I realized I should add on an electrical engineering degree. And so I sort of started with physics, added on electrical engineering. And I think that for me, that really kind of speaks to, yes, I am interested in why things are the way they are, but I'm very fascinated and energized by doing something that's practical. Right. So our company is a hardware product development company. Right. We build things that work, and they have to work, and they have to work in a way that makes an impact in, a, in an application that's worthwhile. And that's really what I, you know, get up every day to do.
0: Again, it's that inter- intersection of kind of a technology drive there and a market drive. Right. Make things practical, add value to others, so that people will appreciate. How can people find out more about the fascinating work that you're doing, that Nanoramic is doing? I think, you know, a significant change in the electric vehicle market that you guys are creating.
1: Yep, I think that we're going to change the way that lithium ion batteries are made. You can go to nanoramic.com. You can go to our contact us form there. You can also find us on LinkedIn and follow us. Um, If you find the company, you can click follow.
0: Excellent. Dr. John Cooley, I appreciate the information. Thank you so much for being with us and taking us down this path of this intersection between tech and market and how that can help us be better innovators as well.
1: Great. Thank you very much, Chad. Thanks for having me.
0: And listeners, once again, remember if you want a written copy of everything we discussed as well as that one-page action guide, simply go to productmasterynow.com slash 393. Keep innovating, everyone.
1: Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.